This is not a podcast for pants. Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast, episode 87. I'm Carissa, and I'm joined by some other nerds, Matt. Hello. And Ryan. Hello. Together, we take on this week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now and go read your week's books. Then come on back. One of us picks their favorite book, and that's the pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. And the pick of the week goes to Secret Empire, number 10. Our companion song is Stand and Fight by James Taylor because, well, it felt like it was a little on the nose. Those exact words are used repeatedly in this comic. So there you go. Take a listen. When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change but somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Yeah. I think that's the best two pages of that comic. Oh, yeah. The stand and fight part. Secret Empire, number 10. Marvel Comics, written by Nick Spencer. Pencils by Steve McNiven. Inks by Jay Leistein. I'm just going to go with that. Colors by Matthew Wilson. Additional art by Rod Reese. Juan Viasco. And Jesus Abertov. Um, and Rob Lim. <laughs> I wasn't really super impressed by hardly any of the books this week. Nothing jumped out as my super favorite. But this seemed like the one to cover if you're going to cover one as a pick. I also thought that Ryan would want to talk about it a lot. So it had his good moments. I just didn't like super blow me out of the way like it weirdly felt kind of changed like it went off its path a little bit and like it felt kind of rushed i don't know just something just seemed off by like the, when you compared it to the rest of the series i do agree that the ending seems rushed which is weird because they added additional issues do you mean the ending of this particular issue or the ending of the whole series ending of the series this issue in particular i think the ending is really weak because instead of ending on the avengers and all of that they end with this inhuman family that we've kind of been following but i don't really care about that much oh see i hated the ending a little bit further back from there the book i thought was really fantastic all the way up until the denouement and the denouement on this was fucking horrible it was just like take a john hughes movie and like somebody fresh out of film school that didn't pay any attention and got d's the entire time tried to do a john hughes ending and that was the end of the book it just sucked the rest of it was fantastic but the ending was just like hey guys remember marvel before secret empire we're just going immediately right back to the way it was except for we've killed a fucking couple people yeah i would say if they were rebuilding the whole world why couldn't they just rebuild it now you know well because kobik doesn't want them to forget what happened there's no reason to not forget what happened i think she wants them to remember so that they don't repeat the mistakes that happened that they remember how they were so easily split apart how they were fractured and broken and hopefully they'll learn from that but being comics of course they will not remember these lessons they will learn nothing from any of this I really like the little retro panel of Captain America with Thanos, like how they kind of intersparse some of those retro ones in there. There were some really great tribute panels in here. Like there's one where Hydra Cap in his Iron Man armor is fighting Captain America and they have that classic Iron Man Captain America thing where Cap's holding up the shield and he's repulsor blasting it. It's a very classic. You get it in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you get it in the comics. Here they do it too. Our champion did not falter. Yeah, that was good. I like how the kid at the end is playing with the Sam Captain 
Captain America, not actual Captain America. Right. Well, Cap is like, this is still not my shield. And I'm like, fuck, whatever. Okay. And there's also a nice little double imagery when original Cap, the OG Cap, is talking to Kobik and he grabs her hand. He holds her hand because she's not strong enough to fight. And then like a page or two later, there's a part where he reaches down and grabs Bucky to pull him up. I thought that was a nice little yeah. pairing of those two images. Once old school, you know, with the feather scale shirt comes through and he solidifies, that's an awesome drawing of him facing down evil Hydra Cap. Yeah, he looks pretty pissed off. That was a super epic moment. That While I was reading this, I was fucking with Ryan on our chat. <laughs> that was one of the moments that I was talking about. And you were like, I swear to God, I'm going to hit you. <laughs> And then there's a picture of Kobik, and, like, I swear they just pulled up a picture of Season 1 Arya Stark for that <laughs> picture of Kobik. I like the Kobik in actual reality better than how she was drawn in Kobik Cube World. When she comes out, she looks pretty pissed. She kind of reminds me of Lyanna Mormont in that drawing more than Arya Stark, really. But I really like how she's drawn. She's way prettier there. I also did like the thing with the hammer, that Thor's hammer had been modified by Hydra, so then it kind of switched back when Kobik came back and was restoring the world, and Hydra Cap goes to grab the hammer, and he can't and then the OG Steve Rogers is like here let me try and you kind of get the answer to which has been answered in Marvel comics before like can Cap wield the hammer of Thor and he fucking kills bitch slaps him that's a pretty awesome panel where he slams him and shatters all the armor that shit's poster worthy yeah and then I also like like this doesn't belong to me either and just tosses it back to Jane Foster yeah she's like Ding. I like with the hammer that to kind of be worthy of the hammer you kind of have to be willing to give it to someone else that that is kind of what makes you worthy of it it's not trapped by the power and glory of it. One thing I don't like is I can't stand Sam having the shield, and it's not because he doesn't deserve the shield. It is not fucking aerodynamic to have to carry a fucking shield. It makes no sense. I'm sure there's going to be a whole thing with reclaiming the shield for the new Captain America. Yeah, I mean, if he's going to become, like, Agent Rogers again, then that's cool, because I really like the Agent Rogers outfit. But then that spread that they do at the end, where they're like, they are again Earth's mightiest heroes. Who's the kid on the left? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering that. I think that's the guy who who's been hanging out with the champions, who's like Falcon Jr. I don't know his actual name. I probably should, but I don't. The kid with the weird eyes. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought that. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck is this dude? <laughs> there is actually a panel when they're going to fight Cap, and it's kind of doomed that they're going to fight. I did like seeing Kamala in there, and I also like seeing Jean Grey in there as well. Young Jean Grey going into the fight. I thought those were pretty cool. Yep. Yeah, I don't like that they kept Nat killed. Because one, you know sometime in comic, they're going to find a way to bring her back. Yeah. And it just seems like they left everything else destroyed. I think that had been message enough. You know, they showed like Vegas in ruins. It's like, dude. Yeah. By the way, Marvel, here's from Vegas. Fuck you. Okay. <laughs> Fuck you, Kobik. Yeah, there's no reason that Vegas has to stay destroyed. Ugh. Well, I think in order for this to have weight, people need to have died, which they did, and they need to stay dead for, probably takes about two years for characters to come back. That seems to be the normal timeline. Yeah, but explain away Las Vegas being destroyed in the comics. Is the damage control just going to show up and rebuild? Also, I didn't really see the entire town get destroyed. It was the strip that got blown up. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you can't have fun. That's what her message is. You guys messed up. No fun gambling or strippers for you. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about things we liked about it. Do you want to give us kind of a brief summary of how this actually ended, Carissa? So they have a plan. They show evil Cap in his cube Iron Man outfit. We have another little piece. You can't be whole till you have this piece. And then it shows Sam Cap. You're like, no, I'm not going to fight you for it. Here, have it. And it was all a ruse because on that little shard, they had Ant-Man dragging along Bucky to jump inside the cube because they had a theory. I got a theory. And so they jumped in so they could help break out Steve and Cubic out of there. And eventually they pull him out 
out of there and it's weird you know it comes out of his chest it's all blue and glowy and then actual Steve and Hydra Steve have at there's a cool thing where the Avengers do one last push and they are all fighting while this is happening because he was not only like reimagining the world he fully went and cubed the entire world like the Washington Monument which is already kind of phallic as it is turns in full on dildo mode with like ribs <laughs> for his, your pleasure kind of thing all the world is completely changed and like even people's memories about it it wasn't just Hydra took over yay we're okay with it it's like Hydra has been this all along Abraham Lincoln is some weird thing and just all sorts of stuff I liked the newspaper panels they had of Marvel history that changes I thought that was probably one of the stronger parts of the issue where they have the Fantastic Four Hydra scientists and they execute the mutant terrorists Charles Xavier and Magneto which I did like in that picture as they're going to the gallows they're holding hands I thought that was pretty cool what's his face specifically makes Spider-Man like on purpose from a Hydra youth Arnim Zola yeah Zola and the Avengers have a Hydra symbol on their chest but then there's like this cool overarching talk about how in that moment facing down the unspeakable we remember we never wavered his honor his legacy we forged a new path and like it's like this whole overarching thing how it says when he reappears he did not falter then it just goes to town Koba gets pissed she starts fixing the world back to you know away from Hydra dildoness Hydra Steve's goes no and he has his shield back because he stole it from Sam but then that's when original Captain America comes out of the glow thing powers down his armor and it's like we're gonna fight I love when Hydra Cat throws the shield at the OG Cap and he kind of does a Matrix move and then reaches his hand out and grabs it by the straps like ah welcome back old friend and I like how he says that shield doesn't belong to you and then like evil Hydra Cap's like try and take it from you then with the perfectly match because you know well they're the same person same unbreakable will and all that kind of stuff and like you said there's the shield blocking the pulsar thing that's the one that has the line our champion did not falter which i thought was pretty cool the best part of the comic is the overarching part where it says he reminded us about a choice and confronting this type of evil how you do not run you do not hide you stand and you fight and then it repeats that stand and fight hence why the song i picked stand and fight i think that's a really powerful set of panels that they do there he's pounding him into the ground but you keep getting that with every punch that same repeated line and then there's a part like you mentioned with thor's hammer and it changing from Hydra to Thor and then like I said he gets bitch slapped and kabooey the armor shatters and you know everything kind of gets cleaned up after that and that's when they explain how Kobik fixed it but left some stuff as it is then there's the part with the human stuff which I didn't really care about yeah I thought that was the weakest part of the book I mean I get what they're doing it's really a muddled message at the end because everyone lived through all this and then they're all just like sorry neighbor and like start painting over all the hate symbols and stuff and it's like you guys still did that you know it was like oops yeah our bad yeah it just seems very weird and there's also a part where they have him sign some kind of like release document and i can't really tell what's happening in that scene very much it was basically indemnifying the u.s government for anything wrong or bad that happened to him because they didn't want to take responsibility for it right and then they'd let him out it's pretty fucked up right there his freedom is dependent upon him signing that right that's what i mean about a muddled message i mean overall i think secret empire it's been really controversial i think it's been more controversial from people who don't actually read haven't been following this since the pleasant hill arc through to this which has been you know a good year and a half or so of comics i mean personally i think that this is about the growing rise of fascism and how easy it is to go along with those leaders and how the nation gets twisted and corrupted i think it's a real mistake that people make that they think that this is celebrating hydra and its ideals hydra is the worst nightmare in here so if people have been holding off on reading it and forming their opinions 
on what people are saying on the internet, I strongly suggest you read a couple issues of it, and I think your opinion will change. Whether you like it or not, I think your objections maybe will become more about the actual book than things that you're assuming about the book. Yeah, I read some articles online where people are saying how they think Marvel did an about-face and totally changed what they intended for part of this. I don't think so at all. I don't know if that's true, but, that, but that's definitely a message going out there to people. I think this was the intended outcome of the, the whole plot line. It's incredibly well-written, but not subtle at all. Everybody knew coming into this thing the way it was going to come out of it. I think that they used kind of current events like Marvel always does. That's Marvel's thing, is to kind of try to fit current events into the comics. Right, the Marvel Universe is a lot more tied to our real world than the DC yeah. Universe, which is more, I don't know, idealized, might say. It was an incredibly well-written, but kind of trite and expected series. I expected every single thing that happened in here, and I predicted several things. It's worth a read, definitely worth a read, but if you're looking for something where you're going to have surprises, I didn't really have any surprises in this series. But I didn't expect any coming into it. I think the major goalposts and markers of this are not surprising, but how they got to some of them did surprise me. And there are parts that have real emotional impact in here. Like when they execute Rick Jones, that was impactful. When Natasha dies, there are things in here that have real punch. And some of the ways that they get to where they're going, I think kept me at least interested in the book. I've been a big fan all throughout. I know me and Matt, and a lot of, actually I think all of us, had the same idea and theory that this was the cube, it was Kobik all along. Like we called it early on. Yeah, there wasn't that many surprises. I mean, there were some good comic moments, like you're, everyone was saying, like the thing with Nat, that was beautifully done. Like, I love the paneling and the artwork and that. I mean, there are some great panels that make it really good for comics. But overall, there was a lot of it that I just wasn't really impressed by. A lot of it felt really predictable. I'm going to give it four. This is for Nat, you <laughs> son of a bitch. I will give it four and a half stand and fights. I'm going to give a four and a half worthies. I loved it. I would have given a higher score, but the ending just kind of dropped me. I kind of agree with the weakness of the ending. All right. We're still in Marvel, but we're going along the ride that Kobe has sent us on in Generations, which they explain at the end of Secret Empire what the hell is going on with Generations. Wait, 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 wait. No, they didn't. Yes, they did. What? Let me explain in just a second. Let me get through okay. that. <laughs> All right. So we have Generations, Hawkeye and Hawkeye, Marvel Comics, The Archers, written by Kelly Thompson, Pencils and Eeks by Stefano Raphael, and Colors by Digicor. So... I'm glad Matt's not the only one that went, what, 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 what? <laughs> no, they explain Generations at the end of Secret Empire. When they're standing there, and Kobik explains that she's not going to reset the world, and she sends them all on a journey where they learn something. That's when Generations happens. Oh, that's why it's that particular group of people. Yes, because those are the people who are there at the final battle, so they're all being sent back in time to kind of learn a lesson about themselves and the other person and their place in it. Oh, that makes me like Generations even less. <laughs> I was kind of right. This felt like another one of the Hawkeyes were there together to me. So, Generations Hawkeye and Hawkeye, it's Kate Bishop and Clint Barton. Hawkeyes. Hawkeyes, yes. <laughs> because she doesn't want to tell Clint what's going on because she quickly realizes she's back in time due to the 80s-tastic costumes that everyone is wearing and the stupid face mask, which you called Matt. <laughs> that smells. I love that. So she doesn't want to say too much because she will mess up the timeline. She believes in the butterfly effect. <laughs> First she enters herself as Hawk and then she's going to say I, but she realizes that would be too weird, so she says hawk S. And she has this whole thing where she's being really, obviously, almost coy about who she is and Clint's like, I don't know what the hell you're doing. I don't believe you, but I trust you in some weird way. So let's go kick some ass. Kate Bishop gets transported back to an island where they're having almost like a most dangerous game or Hunger Games type of 
event. Hunger Games and uh, Battle Royale. <laughs> All the most famous marksmen throughout time have been teleported there and they have these belts that have like a little target on them that if you hit it, it'll transport you back to where you were supposed to go and you find out that there's villains there and the villains aren't using the teleporting belts. They're just fucking killing people. So Weird laser tag. So Clint runs into Kate and they have their little moments there. I really like the tone of this book. It's basically in Kate's voice, which is a very fun voice to read things in. So I liked that. So they go on a bunch of adventures and they fight bad guys. Like they fight Bullseye and Taskmaster and all those guys. But the real point of this book is kind of about the mentor-mentor-e relationship. All the problems that Kate has with Clint, she gets to see that Clint has the same issues with the swordsman. And she starts to realize that Clint is actually a good mentor and that they do have fun together and they learn from each other. So she comes to understand what's going on. And at the end, it's kind of funny. She's having this heart-to-heart with him while they're waiting for her to be teleported away. And she's telling him a lot of things and he's passed out asleep. (laughs) And she's like, some things never change. And then she kind of fades away. So I think it's interesting that in almost every generation's book, it's the newer hero that learns something and the old hero learns nothing because they're either hulked out or drunk or something has happened to them so the older person doesn't remember the lesson, which makes sense because it would fuck up time if they did. Yeah, exactly. And each of the new heroes has pretty much quickly realized they're back in time and don't say too much to affect the timeline. So I like this book overall. I thought the art on this was pretty fantastic. There's a couple of panels where Kate Bishop is in motion, so you get a couple of her in one panel moving through, which I am a huge sucker for. They do the cute little pink target things of her vision like they do in her comic, which I love. Yep, I like that. When I was reading it, I'm like, where's the food? You know, because that's always what she points out is either food or like a cute guy's ass, one of the two. (laughs) But none of those were in there. It was all just tactical stuff that she saw. But I liked that. I liked the tone that they got. Kelly Thompson is a pretty fantastic writer. We really enjoyed her when she did A-Force. And we've enjoyed a lot of her Hawkeye books as well. So overall, I was real happy with this. And now that I understand what Generations is supposed to be, it makes it a lot easier. That's the problem when you start screwing with and adding extra issues to big events. Because it seems to me pretty clearly... Secret Empire was supposed to end two months ago and then Generations was supposed to come out and it would make more sense, but because they expanded it, you don't get the explanation for Generations until now. So, what'd you guys think of it? It's Kelly Thompson so it has that feel, that lightheartedness that I like with her work. This could have just been in a Hawkeye book, you know, not really Generations. I really like when they're talking their costumes where he's like, eh, stick with the hip holes. So he's like taking a dig at hers even though his is clearly worse. Right. Her like trying to pour her feelings out, which has never been easy for either of those Hawkeyes and him falling asleep. I thought was both classic and frustrating at the same time. That's Clint. <laughs> and yeah, I think Matt's going to grumble now. Matt doesn't like Clint. See, this Clint isn't the Clint that I hate. I hate modern Clint because modern Clint makes horrible decisions and kills friends. And he's a bastard. When they ask him to. I didn't see that happen. <laughs> I was not personally there. Didn't see it happen. All I've got to go on is Clint Barton's word. And that isn't worth much to me because he kills friends. <laughs> Maybe that those friends are monsters, but they weren't monsters at that point in time. Clint made a snap decision. He's going to have to live with for the rest of his life. And every time I read a book with Kate Bishop in it, I just want Young Avengers back. Young Avengers was fantastic. Oh, such a fucking great book. Y'all get Runaways back, but I don't get Young Avengers back. I get the Young Avengers broken up into several billion different teams. But sadly, we're only getting Runaways back because of the TV show, which doesn't give me that high of hopes for it. And plus, Brian K. Vaughn is not involved, and I'm really worried about how it's going to be. So it was 
so strongly his voice and it being taken over by other people makes me very apprehensive. We'll see next week when we review it, but I agree with you that that book is uniquely Brian K. Vaughn, so when other people write it, it falls kind of short, but Hawkeye. <laughs> yes, but her in a mask is awesome. I mean, that's pretty much all I wanted out of this book, was her to like, make fun of his costume and then try it on, and it happened. I did think it was funny when she had him hand her the mask, and she was like, this smells funny. My favorite part. It was pretty good. I will give it four. I'm not throwing away my shot. I gave it four. So much pink, dude. So much pink. I gave it three and a half target belt buckles. Out of Marvel. To DC, ostensibly with the King. And actually, I think this is the appropriate week for it. Jack King Kirby's 100th birthday was last week. Kirby is about as important for modern comics as you can get. Agree. He created most of Marvel, and a lot of the deep weird shit in DC is Kirby. Called the Fourth World. Yeah, the Fourth World, Commandi, Omat. If it's weird and it's DC and it's old, it's probably Kirby. <laughs> he was fucking brilliant. Just genius creator. He had an art style that is kind of unparalleled, but you'll see it in other people. There's a style of art called the Marvel Method, which is basically the artist and the writer kind of come up with a story. The artist draws out the entire fucking book, and then the writer comes in and puts the words in, and that's how all the early Marvel comics were. If you look at them, it's kind of obvious, too. There's some fantastic four books where you'll see the Invisible Woman, or I guess she's the Invisible Girl at that time. She's all action-packed and shit, but in the actual finished book, you've got her thinking, like, these weird, ditzy, stereotypic thoughts. She's like a secretary. Yeah, basically. She's like, gosh, I hope Reed notices me. But she's, like, kicking somebody's ass at the time. It's because Kirby was writing an an actual fleshed-out character, and Stan is Stanley. He's kind of... It's shocking how one-dimensional and sexist the Invisible Girl in Fantastic Four early on is. Yeah, I don't think she was intended to be, but as far as this book goes, Darkseid is one of his most endearing creations. Thanos is a ripoff of Darkseid. Jack Kirby, he creates mythologies. I mean, that's kind of what he did. And Darkseid is like the devil of every religion all kind of mixed up into one tyrant who rules over an entire planet. So who actually put out this book? Good point. This is Darkseid Special Number 1 by DC Comics, The Resistance, written by Marilla Evanier. Pencils and inks by Scott Collins. Colors by David McCraig. Then there's another story, Omac One Man Army Corps, written by Paul Levitz and Phil Hester. Pencils by Phil Hester. Inks by Andrew Parks. Colors by Dave Stewart. And another story, The Young Gods of Supertown, Raid from Apocalypse, written by Jack Kirby. Pencils by Jack Kirby and inks by Vince Coletta. The first story here, and most of the stories you ever see about Darkseid are actually kind of done appropriately, I think. Because if you have a story about Darkseid, it's just a lot of people getting fucked up and killed. Yes. When you see Darkseid stories, it's more about the world around Darkseid, the things that his existence creates, the despair that his world is. I mean, the planet of Apocalypse is Darkseid's head, right? It's the darkest, most horrible place you could ever think of. It's the darkest future. It's his will made manifest in the world. Exactly. If you look at all the supervillains throughout history, and I mean like the Buck Rogers type supervillains, he is worse than Ming the Merciless. Ming the Merciless is probably a freedom fighter compared to Darkseid. Darkseid is fear incarnate. He is a monster. So the story is the story of three people who have escaped from the orphanage. The orphanage is where Scott Free, and there's a picture in here where Scott Free, who is Mr. Miracle in the New Gods comics, he's one of the New Gods. He is actually High Father's son, but High Father and Darkseid did a switch. So Orion grew up on New Genesis, and unfortunately, <laughs> Mr. Miracle grew up over here. You don't really see Darkseid for a few pages into the book, and he's torturing one of his hunters who was trying to find the people who had escaped from the orphanage. And you get him to see this really awesome 
and well done image of him using his Omega Beams, but you also got the Kirby Bubbles, which are these negative space bubbles that are just indicative of Kirby's art. He kind of shows the shadow in energy, like the darkness and the light. It's a heavy contrast. I feel like of all the kind of tribute books we've read for the Kirby anniversary that they're doing here, this one is the closest to actual looking like a Kirby book. It looks like a Kirby book and it kind of feels like a Kirby book. They're always really weird. Kirby, I mean, he's been around since the 30s. He created Captain America with uh, Joe Simon. So he's been doing, or he did comics for a very long time. He passed away in the 90s. But he had a earth-shattering impact on comics. This book, long run, this particular book is going to go in that stack of these are the Kirby special 100th birthday books. And it's not really got anything that's super important to the rest of the DC universe or any other plot lines that are going on. This is a side thing. Yeah, just reminding people of what these stories are. And it seems really clear to me that DC is intending to do some more fourth world stuff. Yeah, they're definitely leading up to some fourth world stuff. This is basically just the story of freedom fighters fighting against unstoppable evil and catching him when he's down. Not even really down. He's at the top. He's destroying them, but they trick him into admitting that he has fear. And for a tyrant like Darkseid, somebody who lives and rules by fear, him to have fear is just inexcusable. Yeah, they trick him in like a supervillain has to confess their plans kind of thing. Yep. And the person is secretly recording the message. On a mother box. Which I like that her plan to defeat Darkseid is not to actually physically go toe-to-toe with Darkseid or even really survive the encounter. She records that message and then like throws it out the window where her companion is waiting to go and broadcast that. And I thought that was kind of cool. That the idea, yeah, like you're saying, of fear from the tyrant is incredibly dangerous to him. And it's the most kind of Kirby-ish of books. I can see Kirby writing something like that. That's the way he kind of thought. This felt really classic to me. Like this felt like it could have been an original Kirby book. The second story is about Omak. Omak got used a few years ago with Brother Eye in the Justice League and Batman stories. But in there, they kind of changed a little bit so that Batman was actually the one that came up with the Brother Eye satellite. And the Omaks became like these modified humans. In the Kirby books, Omak is literally this one guy. And he actually, I don't know if you guys reviewed the Commandi Challenge where they had Ben Boxer, I think is his name. He's a dude in red. But he is actually who Omak actually is. He's kind of Captain Marvelish a little bit, but he becomes Omak, and he's just this fighting force with this, like, big Athenian, like, mohawk kind of thing. He's meant to look kind of like a Greek warrior, but in weird goofy clothing with the brother eye. And it's just this weird take that Kirby had on kind of society and totalitarianism. And it's appropriate for somebody who fought in World War II. He always has these kind of big brother... I think it's his take on how a man gets broken down and made into a servant of the state. Yep, and then breaks free. The last story in here is an actual straight-up Kirby book. Uh, well, not a book, but uh, a little insert story in the back, The Young Gods of Supertown. I mean, there's not much to really say about it. It's The Young Gods. It's like, what, four pages? It's literally, it's like he was doing, like, exercise to kind of get warmed up. It's literally just a four-pager with some of the future people getting into some shit. And there's, like, untold amounts of just grasslands on New Genesis, because every one of these seems to be in the weird grasslands of New Genesis, where somebody from apocalypse is sneaking up to attack i mean it was probably the most coherent of these little kirby slices we've gotten so far i think it actually told a complete little story about weird space cowboys fighting aliens kirby is weird so you expect weird out of kirby remember four of the fantastic four marvel wrote 
romance and westerns, westerns and, and monsters and romance and that sort of stuff. Lots of big kaiju type monsters. That came out of Kirby's head. Yeah. Which is what Monsters Unleashed was supposed to be, but I don't think they did a very good job of it. Well, I love Kirby and I love the work he's done. This book was not super fantastic, but these special books, they don't have much depth outside of the book themselves while they're good, impactful books. I only gave it a three and a half recordings on a mother box. I think you and I gave it the same rating. I felt this one was the closest to an actual Kirby book, both in art and writing style that I saw. And I will give it three and a half granny goodness. Alrighty, moving on to Saga number 46, Image Comics, written by Brian K. Vaughn and art by Fiona Staples. When we left off, Prince Robot had rescued, I can never remember her name, and he was gonna shoot down the weird horse bounty hunter people were like pleading for their lives, and they're saying, well, you know, she's just a wreather, it's not your mortal enemy, but then they mentioned like, you can kill us but save our son, and then that makes Prince Robot a little nostalgic for his own son. So he lets them go, which I think is a mistake, because man, look at those daggers that kid's throwing at him. You know something's just gonna come back. Prince Robot and, oh, it's Petrichor. That's actually the smell when it's kind of rainy outside, but it's not actually raining. That smell in the air where you're like, it smells like rain, that's Petrichor. It's actually a stuff that comes out of the ground when the air gets humid, huh. and it's been dry for a while. Mm, interesting. It's a cool name. But they kind of have a moment. I like how uh, Prince Robot explains how he's very fluid, and that he's known all along that she was a trans person. I like when he says that. You can always tell his thoughts from the head images that he shows. I like that he shows the sign from the bathroom where it's split with like half the dress coming off the side. I thought that was cool. I really like their interaction throughout the story. There's probably, I thought, one of the stronger parts of this book. They were back to the weird, creepy werewolf doctor covered in blood person who's like weirdly angular and skinny and just being weirdly creepy and not really answering. Like I like how it, it gestures to its house. It's just something about the way it holds its head and its eyes with its bloody hand. It's just it's really creepy. Fiona Staples does a really good job of making this creature really unsettling. And I think I talked about it before. I think it's the angles that she draws everything with. That it's not a normal way that a creature stands and it doesn't go in the direction that it should go in. And like she talks about like, oh, don't worry about her pups. They're full. They'll sleep till morning. Am I the only one that thinks that they're full on eating dead fetuses? Because that's what I thought. Oh, they absolutely are. That's absolutely what I got from that. Okay. Because that's what it made me think. And I was like, it doesn't flat out say it, but that's what I, I was like. Ugh. Yeah, especially because she says they just ate and she just performed an operation and yeah. yeah. Hazel has a moment with Hurdy, her brother ghost again, which is very touching and sweet and sad, as you'd expect. It is. I think that scene works really well because it gives you all of the emotional range. You get the really sweet, touching stuff. You get the really funny part where she sings the lullaby that she loves from when she was a kid. From Isabel. And it's basically, <laughs> you're a fat little baby, but you're just like every baby, yeah. so don't feel ashamed about it. Marco is clearly trying to protect Alana. They see the last patients, like this elephant alien and he's like is it dead and though the monster werewolf monster didn't make a good point like for someone who really wants anonymity you're sure asking a lot of questions about my other patient who also wanted anonymity but you know pretty true but still the way that this thing's super creepy i'd be asking a million questions too yeah it is an ultra creepy setting but this is essentially a back alley abortion clinic we see marco struggling with his feelings about what this person actually does because he's only here to have it removed to save her they would have never have come here for what most people go there for and so he's trying to explain that and really this person's not having any of it. I think it's really hard to thread that issue. And I 
I think Brian K. Vaughn does a really good job of it because he raises the questions, but he doesn't answer them. It's like an ongoing thing with Hazel's and all the saga issues. It's like her overthought of her in the future talking about what's happening. It's her telling the story and she talks about having attachments and how sometimes it's really hard even where she's at the point where she doesn't have any attachments, which sounds very foreboding. I love the last, that's not the last line, but it's the last one after Curdy disappears, where she says, it's funny which random moments from our past your mind chooses to cling to. And I have totally personally thought that many times. It's really weird what your mind chooses to remember. And Brian Yvonne does a lot. I like seeing something that I personally felt come up and you can relate to it because you're like, oh, someone else has thought that before too. Very much like Sex Criminals, as fantastic as Saga is, it's incredibly human and insightful in its relationships because things aren't clean and easy. There's pain and there's loss and there's hard things they have to do and they don't know the answers and they don't always do the perfect thing. And I think that makes it very relatable. And I like that he keeps calling her hazy. Since that ritual, that bell that Marco said Alana is doing to project this Curdy is that it's like an option of the future. And so the fact that he keeps saying that he knows he's going to grow up to be a good singer makes me curious about if it is really predictive. There's this more with Prince Robot and Petrichor. And I like how they're complaining yet complimenting about Marco and Alana and connecting over trashy romance novels. They're kind of bickering with each other and then they just kind of start making out. I like that fight or fuck energy that's going on in that scene. I think yeah. that's really captures that feeling. I like it. They're yelling at each other, but their faces are like so close to each other, like their noses are almost touching. Really like that. And then that last scene is a pretty nice full page image there. Prince Robot has had some sort of evolving in arc. He's been all over the place in this book. I still don't really like him very much, but he will let you down when you need him to do something good, but when you least expect it, he kind of redeems himself. I have no idea what the fuck is going on. It was incredibly depressing. Yep. Yeah. Brian K. Vaughn, he's a fantastic writer, and I'm sure if I was able to get into it, I would love it, but I have no idea what's happening. I am into it, and I love it. I really like it. Giving it four and a half. Goodbye, baby brother. I will give it four. Make a move and find out, robot. And he calls her a mouthy trollop. Their dialogue back and forth is pretty great. Just because it's so well done. I'll give it three and a half. Oh my god, that was fucking depressing. (laughs) You say you don't get Saga, but you just summed it up perfectly. Because this is family's life. But I don't care about this family! Ugh, your heart needs to grow a few sizes, Matt. Star-crossed lovers! Epic story through time. Family. Innocence lost. Prejudice. It would make some sense if they would just admit that this is like fantasy in a sci-fi place. Straight, just call her a fairy, and I'm good. <laughs> That's all you have to do. Call him a satyr, and I'm good. I can get on board. What you say about the fantasy and the sci-fi, I view this kind of as like almost a Warhammer 40k setting, and that there are fantasy races that have evolved past some of their sword and sorcery, but they still keep the sorceries around a little bit. But back to the book of little girls and pinafores creepy little kids. BPRD, The Devil You Know Number 2, by Dark Horse Comics, written by Mike Mignola and Scott Alley. Pencils and inks by Lawrence Campbell, and colors by Dave Stewart. This is coming to a close on the BPRD universe, at least the, the end of it. Mignola swears we are. This is the aftermath of the Hell on Earth story. This is where everybody ended up. We're in the Denouement. It's just the Denouement's probably going to take us a good couple dozen issues to get through. So we're in that world, and you can see that there trying to rebuild but the remnants of the attack by the Ogru Jihad are still there. You've still got these huge calcified otherworldly other god demon Lovecraftian shit just in the middle of everything. I mean you can literally see like cranes and stuff putting cities back together again and there's just this fucking huge demon in the background. In the middle of all this I'm not 
quite sure the character, but this blonde chick has decided that she's going to drive in the middle of one of these areas and draw a pentagram on the ground to pull up a demon. And it pops up, and it's like trying to be all, look at me, I'm the big demon guy. <laughs> Ashley Strode's her name. And then she's like, fuck you, show me your real look. And he's this little imp. And he's just kind of floating there. She makes her demands of him. She's got her rosary beads with a crucifix on it, or if it's got some other symbols, it looks like there's other things hanging off. I think she's BPRD's chief exorcist. If she's not, she should be. Exorcist, demonologist, but she basically gets the information from him, and then they don't show it, but obviously she's about to get in there and cut his fucking head off. I like when she steps through the flames there. It's pretty epic. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. And then you've got a group of people in some really neat looking like Cold War armor, where I could actually see people actually wearing this kind of thing in some sort of weird dystopian story. It looks like a prototype for Space Marine armor. Mm-hmm, it does. Or, like, bomb disposal armor. Or the Space Marines from StarCraft, because they have those big, deep helmets. That's true. They're walking through a town. Everybody's just like, okay, we gotta figure out where everything's at right now so that we know if the world's safe again and any weird shit, we gotta go in there. Because it's kind of obvious you can't hide the monsters anymore after they destroyed most of the world. But they're in this town, and there's fungus everywhere. But you can see underneath the ground just eyes just kind of shining through and then we flip over to abe is alive i'm happy i had thought abe sapien was dead and you've got the badass dude with the cool sword he's just kind of sitting by and watching there's a lot of stuff going on liz is like look i need to get out there and do some shit and then that strike force team that's in the weird armor where they find the fungus they just get ripped apart by i guess fungus vampires who just kind of come up out of the ground and everything turns dark and you just see liz take off because she's the human torch now and she's flying there and then you get creepy little Russian girl in the pinafores <laughs> with a whole bunch of New Yorkers just walking down the street and the Nazis in the head jar and the weird BDSM suit. That's the best part. <laughs> you see the remnants of the little strike force team and there's still more Baroque vampires and everybody's just kind of getting chewed to shreds. And then Liz just lights the fucking town on fire gets everything through there a demon hops over to the other person there and then frankenstein who is leonid but looks like frankenstein he's a giant ball of muscle who can take some damage he kind of jumps down in there and helps her out and then they get the fuck out of there but everybody who was there is dead and now he's got to heal but abe's up and then the end of the book it's not a special issue it's just another book in the bprd but it was what i asked for in a bprd book weird shit is happening there's some monsters that I understand, and Liz lights <laughs> shit on fire. So it did the job. Fairly good read if you're a BPRD fan. I did like the little imp trying to be impressive, and he's really not. I thought that part was fun and cute. I really liked the little girl, again, like from the previous issue of her being creepy with the pentaphore and the weird head in a jar. I really want the Baroque Fungus Vampire's jacket. The art in this was fantastic there's so many awesome images in here there's that demon we've mentioned a couple times it tries to be super impressive but really is just a little almost cute little hellboy imp there's those vampires which look amazing when they come out like first they're ominous with just the eyes under the ground then they come out and it's pretty amazing the soldiers look awesome in their armor there's a really cool image of this demon chilling in front of the capitol building but he's kind of chilling back and just dropping people into his mouth that looks pretty rad the art in here is fantastic the last book i really liked a lot because the writing was also very human and i don't feel like you get very much of that in here like i don't really find a reason to care too much about these characters but this book is damn good to look at i uh, want to rate this thing sure all right i will 
will give it three and a half fungus vampires coming up out of the ground. I gave it three. I want that fungus vampires coat. <laughs> I will give it three power armors. Back to Marvel. And it's Jean Grey, number six, written by Dennis Hopeless. Pencils and inks by Paul Davidson. Colors by J. David Ramos. So Jean Grey is continuing her hunt to find out. Last time I tried to figure out who the voice was. And it starts off, which I think is all too fitting, given that it's Dennis Hopeless writing. She's with Doctor Strange. And I like how she's like, I'm on this horror movie virgin pentagram. And he's like doing stuff. But he's like making small talk. It sounds like he's talking about Game of Thrones or something. And he's just kind of like going about his thing. But like he's talking like a normal conversation, but in a completely fantastical setting, which doesn't seem like too much to him. And he's like, I do take it all very seriously. She's like, you're snacking, dude. <laughs> like his explanation that all the theatrics and drama are done by charlatans yeah. and totally. it's not necessary. They get into like a incorporeal form and they're kind of like hanging out with the ghost worlds, you know, like they're in a ghost waiting room and like there's a couple people around them. Astral form. Astral form. And then they're like firing and she's like, oh, hey, are you doing that? And he's like, uh, not my doing. And they're like, oh, gee, what could that be? I think we know. I like how the panels on this after the fire starts happening, we get some like old school Doctor Strange feel panels with the weird cosmic 60 psychedelic backgrounds i totally dig that and then there is some images of the dark phoenix and she looks evil and scary and messed up and she like swallows them there's a series of flashback images but they're not this gene's flashback even though she kind of seems to remember them they can't clearly be her because the gene that they're seeing is way older than the gene that's we're traveling with she looks like old and mean and at least in my opinion they look like all very 60s like they stepped out of Mad Men X-Men yes but what it comes down to is that that Jean like can see her and sense her through her psychic powers and starts like attacking them young Jean and Doctor Strange are pulled through a series of memories like one Gambit totally like knocked out and you see classic 90s Jean which I thought was pretty cool to see but she's totally drawn in my, to me in a style that's very Aeon Flux-esque that the Dark Phoenix drawings that they have in these panels feel very like really long Gated and sharp and yeah sharp angular exactly I like that when she's going through and showing her all these stuff she's like these aren't my memories I barely know Gambit I don't recognize this fight with yeah. Wolverine you know and then they have a fight the astral young Jean is fighting with the 90s Jean the things that you don't like in yourself that you don't really see in yourself you really hate in that other person which just happens to also be yourself kind of what's coming through in this I like that she's having an argument with her in the past and is getting distracted and then taking hits in the memory because she's distracted because she's having this fight with this other self i thought that was kind of neat what i really took away from this this to me feels like this is what the generation <laughs> Jean gray book should have been this to me seems more useful and well done than that one it's like the same thing it's like two in a row kind of thing does it really make sense to me in that regard and this one has a little bit more fleshed out story See, this is what i thought all the generation books should have been the way that they're being done is kind of like a little and now a special episode of kind of stories and I thought it would have been better doing it like this where it's literally just it's a thing showing the, the connections between these generations but I think that the art they were kind of halfway trying to get the weirdness that you get with Doctor Strange because everything kind of looks otherworldly mm -hmm. and kind of like a horror-ish like weird and twisted 
and kind yeah. of not proportioned correctly, which AM Flux is a really good description of that. <laughs> I think that's why they were going for that particular look, because it doesn't look the normal art that you have in a Jean Grey book. It looks more like a Doctor Strange. What she learned from this lesson was the phoenix will eat you alive if you try to fight it. You need to realize you're both good and bad and embrace both because the phoenix can be both good and bad. And if you try to hide from one, it will fight back and overcome the other. You need that balance. And the more that you fight that balance, the more you're going to lose. And I thought that was really interesting. And it's pretty true because you influence how the phoenix is going to be. I did like that part. All you see is like the pain and the suffering and death. And she's like, but that's every life. You're trying to make me into a tragedy. Especially life for Jean Grey. And this is just life. Especially life in comics, really. Though I do like Doctor Strange's like, commentary while he's watching them kind of interact. He's like, that certainly took a turn. <laughs> it's like every time he like, escalates, it's like, I want a picture of him with popcorn or something. I really like the drawing of Ghost Jean at the end. I think she looks pretty awesome now. For the most part, yeah. But she kind of looks like the actress who played Jean Grey in the Fox X-Men movies. Famke Jensen, unfortunately. Whatever actor plays a character in the movies, that's what your character is going to look like for the next decade. That's just inevitable. They did pull in all sorts of references to all sorts of genes. Because, like, that one is totally straight on 90s cartoon gene. Then they have the movie one thrown in there. So, at least it's a mix of different types. It's a decent story. I just feel it's very repetitive and takes a long time to get where it's going. I did like the kind of commentary on... We were talking about the Invisible Woman earlier. And here you get Jean Grey saying some of the same things about how... Stan Lee wrote her essentially where she's saying I'm like an omega level telepath and telekinetic and they treat me like either like a sex symbol a damsel to be rescued or like a mascot and then the other gene points out well you never really told them yeah speak up <laughs> I like that little commentary and the art in here whatever time period you're supposed to be in like you've mentioned it really does look like that time period when it's the 60s it looks like the 60s when it's the 90s or late 80s gene that's who it looks like and then the other stuff is more modern I like how Dr. Strange looks yeah the stuff in Doctor Strange's astral realm is very classic. You know you're in for some trippy shit when you start seeing all those weird pathways and stuff. I dug it. I like Dennis Hopeless's writing. I really like the artwork. I think that the characters are very expressive. Doctor Strange, I like how he's drawn. I like the Molly Ringwald Jean still. I always like her. Again, I just like their commentary and the arguments and like the little insights that have shown up. I really liked it, except I didn't really like the art. They did a competent job, but I just don't like the style. I didn't like I Am Flux specifically for the art. Mm -hmm. I felt it conveyed what it needed to. The inking is too heavy for me. It's just not my style. It's not the worst shit I've seen and not even the worst stuff I've seen tonight. It's just not what I like to read art-wise. The Dark Dimension stuff looked perfect. I thought Doctor Strange looked perfect. I just don't like that art style. It's just me. Ratings? I'm gonna give it four and a half. Are you gonna let him strange-splain all night? Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. I'm gonna give it three and a half seasons in three weeks. I will give it three. I hate to be the bearer princess, but that's just life. Alrighty. Those were the books we read this week. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcast on original streaming media, Clip the Cord at fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Be sure to come on back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading nerds.